Hey there, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Spirits and Psychics, Adventures in New Age and the Occult. I'm your host, Morgan Dolan. And I'm Norm. I'm just here to learn. We're here to explore the people and phenomena that have shaped how we understand the unseen world. Hey, Norm. Hello. So what I have for you today is remote viewing part one. Oh, my. As always, what do you know about remote viewing? Well, as is my want, my only frame of reference is pop culture. And I want to say men who stare at goats dabbled in this where they were trying to, I don't know, spy on Soviets or gain intel or something. And I have this funny feeling that... It was kind of a giant hoodwink on the part of the Soviets where they just leaked misinformation to the states of like, we've got psychics, we're doing remote viewing, like we're we're looking into the Pentagon without electronics. And so the Department of Defense was like, oh man, we gotta get we gotta get in on that. Recruit all psychics and sensitives. <laughs> like, let's do this. And it was just a huge waste of time and resources. You're sort of right, and you're sort of wrong. <laughs> Fair enough. The Soviets make an appearance. The good Cold mm. War definitely provided the funding. Yeah. But it's not quite as cool as the CIA going out and recruiting psychics left and right. I'll just start with, it's the first time we're touching on, let's say, psychic or psychisms in our episodes so far. And it's oddly enough, remote viewing is the most conservative of all psychic techniques, both I think in how the communities view themselves today and their origins, because remote viewing very much originated in the establishment as a technique. And its history is really preoccupied with proving its validity, existence, and usefulness in a measured way. All right. This this is a little confusing to me because on the one hand, I feel like all <laughs> performative spiritualism is somewhat preoccupied with like, no, 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 this is legit, which is why you've got, you know, Houdini leading a troop of pitchforks and torches to debunk it. But I'm not also sure that I understand the axis of conservatism in this psychic spiritualist. Like you, you call it conservative and I'm like, in contrast to what? In contrast to leaning more into a faith-based system. So one of the key tenets of remote viewing is that you can verify the results. Sure. And there's automatic feedback. So instead of other aspects of psychism where, let's say, a psychic might be giving you a reading and mm -hmm. they don't necessarily get that feedback right away from you of what happens to you in six months unless you write a report and say, hey, this came true, this didn't come true, this was off. I see. They're leaning in and going with it versus remote viewing. And I really mean it as this technique of this time because broad spectrum remote viewing is a latent psychic skill. But as it was okay. developed in say, government format, the way the government tried to research it very much involves getting feedback and using, they call it a protocol to make sure this is really remote viewing and right. to stay in the bounds of something testable, verifiable, legit. So you say conservative and you mean kind of closer to a scientific method as opposed to maybe the emotional truthiness that you might get from a medium helping you contact a, a deceased family member or something. And those can be verified in a this landed or this didn't, mm. but remote viewing definitely leans itself more into the 
science side of things if we're going right. to take a cut and dry guys yeah. in lab coats versus ladies in <laughs> you either help me find my missing car keys or you don't and that's mm. that's kind of your value as a remote viewing medium and we really can't separate remote viewing as we know it now from the government of course <laughs> and i really need to invoke its origins so we're going to talk a little bit yes. about what it is and go into this early days because like you, the book by John Ronson, Men Who Scared Goats, was my mm. entry point. And then very quickly spiraled deeper into these original books that were published in the 70s. Everyone's written a biography about it now. And <laughs> before I knew it, I was like, oh, gosh, this is definitely going to be a two-parter. There's too much here. And we're not even out of, into the 80s yet. So, All right. Appetite whetted. Let's go. <laughs> so when I first started... Digging into remote viewing, went to my old favorite, Reddit, and there's a subreddit, our remote viewing, and there is an international remote viewing association, huh. which is, it's the leftovers of the government establishment that then once the funding got cut off in the 90s, it spun out into its own organization. And a lot of the founding fathers were there or became, let's see, I've got a timeline right here. I mean, I don't know if that's culturally consequential. But it's just after theosophy, you know, having satellite, <laughs> you know, temples or whatever all over the world. I'm just kind of going, all right, U.S. military industrial complex endorses this. It's probably in Virginia. Well, yeah, it would be, wouldn't it? I don't know if I'd say they endorse it. There's That's a part two <laughs> where Fair we are enough. now. But it began in very endorsed places. So mm -hmm. what remote viewing is. The definition in the subreddit is as follows. Remote viewing is a mental faculty that allows a perceiver, a viewer, to describe or give details about a target that is inaccessible to normal senses due to distance, time, or shielding. For example, a viewer might be asked to describe a location on the other side of the world, which he or she has never visited, and they might also describe an event that happened long ago, or describe an object sealed in a container or locked in a room, or perhaps even describe a person or an activity, all without being told anything about the target, not even its name or its designation. Yeah, you know, what card am I holding up? Only longer odds, because <laughs> you don't have a 1 in 52. And those were the early studies, just guessing sure. cards. And they're not useful, because apparently there's a recorded decline in accuracy. So you, right. someone can start out being quite right, and then just... Not for the difficulty or statistics of it, but because it's boring. Sure. Pretty sure this is how Bill Murray tries to get laid at the beginning of Ghostbusters. And he's fully lying about the results to try to engage the uh, female reader, while the male, who is actually making accurate guesses, gets... I believe it because this was definitely in the zeitgeist of that time. But there's an mm -hmm. immediate positioning in the subreddit of separating remote viewing from other aspects of psychic abilities, making remote viewing seem more certain scientific and valid. And that's the vibe you get when you're reading about it. Like, no, 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 this, this is a mental faculty. This isn't woo-woo in any way. This... Is this the origin of ESP? Like as in the nomenclature? You're giving me eyebrows. I don't know if that means I'm, I'm onto something. So I find this immediate rejection of other aspects of psychism really fascinating. And it was this beginning of my digging into the dirt of what this topic was. And here's what they say about separating it. 
Unlike other psi disciplines, RV is not precisely one thing, but rather an integrated cocktail of various phenomena. Despite the viewing part of the term, remote viewing is only partly about experiences associated with what might be visible about the target. It also involves mental impressions, sounds, tastes, smells, textures, as well as limited telepathy-like effects, and in some cases, plain intuitive knowing. All right, you threw telepathy in there very low-key, and that feels like it's on a whole other level than having a sensual description. Even if it's multiple senses, you know, tastes and smells and stuff, telepathy implies like a more tangible interaction or communication. This is under the umbrella of remote viewing. It sounds a lot like what a good psychic will do. It's a psychic impression, but trying to fit the psychic impressions underneath the umbrella of still keeping it valid and certain. And mm -hmm. I, I think of a government, a gray government building. If this Oh yeah. Big concrete rectangle <laughs> windows that don't seem to let sunlight in. Yeah. Brutalism. That is the architecture of this psychic discipline. There are no Sedona crystals here. <laughs> <laughs> so that definition, it almost sounds like they're, they're trying to remove this almost entirely from psychics writ large, mm -hmm. because that can already involve so many things from, you know, tarot, palm reading, whatever else. And they're moving it away to kind of, it sounds like a rebrand, I guess. RV tends to be more structured than other side disciplines. Mm -hmm. In some important varieties of remote viewing, viewers follow specific scripted formats. These formats are designed to enhance the viewer's performance in various ways, such as to deal with more mental noise, straight thoughts, imaginings, analysis, or allow incoming data to be better managed, which what they're describing is how to quiet your mind in order yeah, to... Yeah, this is like repeating a, a mantra to get into a meditative state. Yes. And this part is in bold on the website of the International Remote Viewing Association. Mm -hmm. RV is not used to give psychic readings, tell fortunes, read auras, or other sorts of popular activities of this nature, but rather a means of doing serious science research and for performing operational type tasks in criminal investigations, government intelligence work, commercial applications, etc. Many who want to explore their individual human potentials also become interested in it. Okay. I mean, this just sounds like the Apple store getting rid of cash registers and lines and being like, no, it's a consumer experience. It's not just a store where you buy things. They have the what's called the protocol to make it testable and verifiable. Mm. And that's, I think, the way of putting boundaries on this mental exercise, a psychic exercise, so that you can take it to guys with mustaches and reflector glasses right. and say, no, no, I can really <laughs> help you do something with this. This also sounds like someone like on the kook spectrum got into this and realized they needed to sell it a certain way and kind of convinced the community to kind of distance themselves from the larger psi community or however they self-identified and actually get them to tolerate this, you know, very industrialized on off, follow the script, do it this way, partly as a rebrand to sell it internally to the military industrial complex. It was actually more the other way around. It was scientists, really? scientists trying to study psychic abilities and then huh. selling it. That's wild. Okay. Here's the protocol into some simple steps. You have to be, has to be planned and it has to be targeted. Random insights and feelings are out of your control and are not considered remote viewing. So if I'm just getting something, Norm, I feel like you're sitting in a room 
That's not remote viewing. Yeah. The data obtained during the session has to be recorded in some format. So video, audio, writing it down. It's double blind. So the person doing the viewing and the person present during the session both cannot know the target. So neither of them know what they're supposed to be looking for. Mm -hmm. You just got a person reaching out or however they describe it. They get sensory information that they should not be privy to. Someone records it and then they try to figure out what it means after the fact. And then you get feedback to know if you're right or wrong. So then you take those impressions, send it off, get feedback. This is also a huge departure from like 19th century spiritualism where (laughs) you can just kind of kick a table and everyone's like, that's it, ghosts, there's knocking, this is real. Like they're really, really, (laughs) clearly they've read their history and are compelled to. Granted, we're looking at what, like a century after that mainstreamification of spiritualism? Absolutely. And this was developed by the Stanford Research Institute, which was a think tank spinoff from Stanford University. I'm sorry. Did you give me a date for this? I know you said 70s, but are we that late in the 20th century? We're in the early 70s. I am very curious if the psychedelic culture and like the the post-50s you know, anti-establishment movement had anything to do with this. Because you often put woo, Mm -hmm. you know, you kind of lump that under hippies and embracing Eastern concepts and stuff. Is there a connection here? It's in the background. But the guys that started this research were physicists studying lasers. Okay. (laughs) That's a huge leap. It's a huge leap, but we're not quite into them yet. And one of the questions, though, on the on the subreddit for remote viewing was, yeah. do I need to be psychic to do it? That is the question, isn't it? And the answer was, remote viewing is a trained ability and does not require any particular skill, such as being psychic. We're all psychic to some degree. And while some may have a better natural ability than others, we all have what it takes to remote view. Wow, that is fascinating. That they might as well be saying, like, we all have this muscle. Some people train it and some people don't. Which is also what I've heard a lot of psychics say. About other psychic uh, abilities. About being able to do reading, being able to get any of that information. Just it's not trained in most people, but everyone could do it. I've never heard that before. I'm so fascinated by that. So before we get started in the history of remote viewing, I'm going to walk you through a little remote viewing exercise. Oh, yes. I get to stretch that muscle. So grab a pen and paper in a calm environment (laughs) in case you're not already there. So my husband, Eduardo, last Mm -hmm. night selected four locations and put them into sealed envelopes. So I do not know what they are, where they are. And we're just gonna do a little test. So these are the terms you just described. You've got Mm -hmm. the viewer, which I think is me in this case. And then you have you as the witness. Facilitator. Mm. Neither of us knows what I'm going to try Mm -hmm. to look for, but it is out there and it's objectively recorded. And you will get feedback. So the goal is to next quiet your mind. Feel free to close your eyes. Center yourself in the center of your skull. And begin to probe inside envelope number one. Is there something I should say to myself? You can. I like to think of it as sitting in an airplane when it's about to take off and you feel like you're quite relaxed. That is not how I feel in an airplane. (laughs) But a feeling of relaxation, awaiting something you know is going to happen, and then get a sense of impressions that they come down. It could be shapes, colors. 
So it's hard to separate my own just memories of places and experiences from something that feels, you know, like I'm not just going through, like I picture my own like classroom experiences and, and vacations I've been on. Well, one of the things that psychics have told me about the experience is that the first many years of practicing is this sense mm. of it, what am I doing? Is this right? Am I even getting mm. a sense of something? So the goal is just lean into it and start describing okay. whatever comes up. You're connecting with envelope number one and just go for it. So I'm just picturing a street with, uh, I'm not sure how to describe them, just kind of like generic blocky mixed use apartments with, uh, you know, maybe street level restaurants, shops, cafes, that kind of thing. And the road is paved, but not like asphalt, not concrete. I don't know if that's cobbled, maybe brick. Anything else? That's what I got. All right, let's open her up and see. Normally one would sit with that for, and let it keep building. But in the interest of time. Interesting. So the picture is completely different from what you describe it's oh. <laughs> sunny sunny san sebastian in the north of yeah. spain however uh, if we got really detailed those streets are like how you described having been there myself but as remote viewers would say no half points so sure yeah you can say this one was a no-go <laughs> yeah <laughs> that's that's a very generic description i think definitely not that okay But it's very interesting because reading about some of these guys that were in the program in their early, Mm -hmm. as they started to learn how to remote view, sometimes they get, they'd miss the target, but get perfectly the building next door or these little slip ups that were like, oh, this actually is real. No points for missing the target. The goal is to get the target and this militarization of psychic phenomena or the application of it. So let's try just for funsies envelope number two. Okay. So I'm picturing hills, green, but with lots of brown spots. Not necessarily like dying grass, but yeah, a a mix of verdants, no trees, and possibly some kind of old-fashioned looking uh, lamps, like street lamps. Okay. That's what I got. Let's see. It's quite exciting to have the... (laughs) unveiling i want to be special but somehow i think i'm not gonna be what you said things with brown spots that weren't just dying grass yeah not not like perfect green hills whoa you're looking at a picture of augusta national golf course in it is a golf course it's a golf course with a sand trap multiple sand traps and a couple little hilly slopes and trees okay but let's be fair. <laughs> was Your husband fair. is an avid golfer. You knew that. That's not a huge reach. Yeah, something but... I'm not trying to describe a golf course. But yeah, you see the compelling... Uh, okay. <laughs> yeah. I can also see how you'd have some confirmation bias creeping in, right? Like you really want something to happen. I think the brown spots, but saying it wasn't grass, is the thing that sold me and then seeing the sand trap. Okay, okay. But... I, it's very much like you to not give yourself any credit at all, so. <laughs> all right, best two out of three. We'll save the others for the end. Okay, okay. <laughs> As a little epilogue. 
<laughs> because now that we've given you some feedback on your experience, I mean, we're going to go into the uh-huh. origins of how I, I had written initially in my script, what do you know about psychic soldiers? But that's really part two. I didn't even get to the psychic soldiers. I was so, <laughs> so busy in the I can scientific tell you exactly origins. exactly what I know about psychic soldiers. <laughs> so we're going to start. It's 1972. And a guy named Hal Putthoff, a Putthoof, Putthoff, is studying lasers and has submitted a, is submitted a proposal to obtain funds for some basic research into quantum biology. Whatever that is. Quantum meaning... Like super small, like submicroscopic. These are physicists. Yeah. Yeah. And in the intro, he raised the issue of whether physical theory as we know it is capable of describing life processes and goes on to suggest possible areas of investigation, including measurements with both plants and lower organisms. And through no work of his own, this proposal travels the physicist scientific community and lands on the desk of a guy named Cleve Baxter in New York, who was involved in measuring the electrical activity of plants with lie detector equipment. Mm -hmm. They still do this. I've seen like TikToks of people plugging plants into speakers. And so these experiments were described as controversial. And while these plants were hooked up to the polygraph machine, they were then slicing off leaves, burning branches, which allegedly would cause a reaction in the plant that was recorded on the polygraph machine. Uh, Isn't (laughs) that just physical vibrations? The plants seemed to react even when a branch had been removed and then it was burned or broken some distance away. Anyway, right. Baxter concluded that there was evidence that plants could feel and that the reaction was not limited by distance. And I think that was probably the controversial part. Yeah. I don't that's... know. <laughs> the fact that the polygraph has been debunked as accurate, even for its intended use, and now we're we're plugging in plants to see if they feel branches being snapped next door. That was exactly what I was going to say. I don't know if mm. at the time the polygraph was known to be just a piece of garbage like it is today. <laughs> But maybe someone also objected to the treatment of plants. I don't know. Yeah. Anyway. So I I have to ask, because we've been so deep in the 19th century, was there no precedent for remote viewing? Or was it just kind of part of the bouquet of psychic phenomenon and hadn't been kind of segregated for, for focus? We're really following the origins of remote viewing as it grew through government funding and through, let's say, the military establishment or that intended use of government establishment and where that then spread out into the ether, especially once it left that little enclave. Okay. But remote viewing as a technique, like as we saw when we just looked at these definitions, it is a part of the psychic bouquet. Right. But this is how that psychic bouquet began to be industrialized. Okay. So maybe not all that different from knocking is one thing, tables moving is one thing, connecting to spirits of deceased people is one thing. You like you you could fragment all of this out. And this eventually found its way. Well, it's in the physics department right now where they're trying to figure out different ways to look at super small bits. And how they relate to each other. I'm not even mm. going to attempt to go into this mainstream gobbledygook of oh, quantum stuff says this because I don't know. We're yeah, going into what they <laughs> knew in the 70s. So a man visiting that lab in New York was a guy named Ingo Swan, who is an artist. Okay. And he sees the proposal and writes to Putoff and says he's already worked with academic researchers to document the effect of psychokinesis or 
PK moving stuff around with your mind. And Swan thinks this could be a method to test the boundary between the physics of the animate and the inanimate. So the extent to which living organisms can manipulate inorganic matter? Yeah, the extent to which you can, by testing the abilities of moving something with your mind, you can see this intention and its effect on inanimate things from a distance. Is it important that they're calling it psychokinesis instead of telekinesis at this point? Psychokinesis seems to be the word they use throughout Mm -hmm. everything I was reading. So I'm not entirely sure where the dividing line is between telekinesis and psychokinesis, but for the layman, they're all the same. It's moving stuff with your mind. (laughs) Okay. And Swan had already been involved in experiments, not just with PK, but also out-of-body experiments by a guy named Carlos Osis, as well as this plant guy, Cleve Baxter. (laughs) So he could speak academic lingo, and he was really tired of like these what's-in-the-box experiments Hmm. and just doing... He'd done a lot of those already. What's in this sealed box? He probably would have nailed these envelopes. Right. (laughs) And he wants to be both a little bit more involved in the construction of the studies and push researchers to do more with a a latent psychic ability. Basically, he's excited enough that he wants to go to the next stage of trials. He genuinely felt he had something to contribute to the study, to the field of study outside of just being a passive subject. Sure. And spoiler alert, he did. <laughs> so he convinces this guy, this laser guy, Puthoff, and Puthoff brings him out to California. So prior to Swan's arrival, Puthoff consulted other physicists to create test condition and ends up using a piece right. of equipment that was like a superconducting magnetometer, the electronic equivalent of a super sensitive magnet compass needle, and it registers magnetic fields on the order of one millionth of the Earth's field. So hyper precise. Hmm. And the apparatus is built to detect quarks. These particles hypothesized to be the basic building blocks of matter. So he really wants to see if anything's going on. Why why magnets specifically? Is that just what they had the ability to fine-tune measure? Pretty much. It seems like magnetometers were the tool used, not just in these types of psychokinesis experiments, but was the way they were testing this sort of subtle thing. So Puthoff goes and picks up Ingo from the airport, and Ingo's apparently like a huge dude, affable, and always smoking a cigar. (laughs) I'm seeing a trend here. And HBB. (laughs) All good psychics like to smoke. Yeah, we got to have our vices. So Puthoff takes him to the basement of the Stanford Varian Physics Building, where they have this magnetometer located in a vault below the floor of the building, shielded by like a mu metal magnet shield. When there's aluminum container, copper shielding, semiconductor shield, they're trying to keep out Magneto. Fully. (laughs) And there's also a decaying magnetic field around the magnetometer itself. What does that mean? I'm not entirely sure, but it seems significant in these layers that they are keeping the magnetometer away from the test subject who's going to try to interact with it. I mean, it sounds to me like if you get a scale out, you want to level it and kind of reset it so that it's at zero before you actually start weighing things. So Ingo Swan had previously been pretty open about loopholes he observed in experiments. Mm. And so Putoff was also trying to cover all his bases because he's a serious scientist and yeah. Ingo Swan's engaging in good faith. He they want they both want to get good data that can be used yeah. to further the study of this stuff. 
I mean, this is just basic scientific method stuff. You do a study, you acknowledge limitations, you modify, you repeat. But Iswan didn't know about the full layers and this whole thing. That was a bit of a surprise, how serious the setup was. Mm -hmm. And so the magnetometer shows outputs, and I kind of imagine it to look like those Richter-scale earthquake graphs. Right, that's what I'm picturing too, yeah. I'm not sure if that's exactly right, but <laughs> that's the image I'm going to go with. So they, they have some way to measure, yeah. So they ask Ingo to connect with the magnetometer and change the outputs. Okay. And he does. He does. So he's not physically connected? He's not wearing like, no, no, he, headgear? He's, he's standing on top of like feet, feet, feet above where this thing is just buried underneath right. this building. above the magnetic shield. And they say, you know, connect with it. The same way I held up that envelope, so I connect to the envelope yeah. and tell me what's inside. And so he does, and he changes the outputs. And the scientists huh. immediately respond by saying, well, something's probably wrong with the equipment. Sure. <laughs> and so, Not an unreasonable first reaction. So they ask him to alter the outputs in a different way. Okay. And within a minute and a half, he does. That's wild. So it's it's at zero. It's kind of like if I put a scale in my on my floor and I was like, all right, Mokes, make the scale go. And I've got it at zero and it's perfectly level and I'm doing nothing. And all of a sudden it's like, gram. I'm like, that's nonsense, though. Do it again. But do it different. You're like, negative kilogram. <laughs> Precisely. Yeah. And so they, they ask what he's done. And Swan explains that he had a direct vision of the apparatus inside and that apparently the act of looking at different parts inside the apparatus reduce the effect so he had a vision in his third eye he could see the way this was structured and kind of like oh what's in here and by probing it mentally that's what then produced the change or the effect and they had or had not described the device to him hadn't described it at all so then he sketched out a graph of the interior as he saw it, commenting mm -hmm. on a gold alloy plate that was indeed there, but had not been brought up in any earlier discussion. Okay, this is compelling. And so Podoff's like totally startled, weirded out, checks the setup again, and they ultimately leave everything running even an hour after they've left to make sure they have this baseline data that sure, sure. the machine's going. Like, is it going to have these random peaks when no one is even trying to interact? And at the end... Put off Swan and two other scientists all signed the chart paper attesting that they were present and witnessed the machine's strange output. And this is where it gets into this interesting dance of compelling things that happen and yet what they can kind of prove or sign off on scientifically. So they couldn't say this was a conclusive experiment because of the way they set it up. There's rules about that sort of thing. Right. But they signed off on something happened. Something. I mean, this is every like drug trial ever, right? You yeah. have a result and then you go correlation versus causation. Are we actually measuring something deliberate? And so put off drafts, a brief paper that... And I mean a brief paper, just like, well, this happened. It was an, essentially, I think, the equivalent of a magazine article or something today. Right. That begins circulating hand to hand. And he's invited to speak to an audience at Stanford. It seems like this is these preliminary steps when you're doing this type of scientific work where you can't publish a full paper that does the whole right. rounds. But you can essentially attest to, we did something. Let's talk about it to the local scene and... Well, I have to imagine they're fishing for grants or something too, right? Like if you want to keep doing this, you got to get some buy-in from the purse strings. So someone approaches him after this talk at Stanford University, and he's described as a tall, gangly, wild-haired dude 
little dude I added in, with Coke bottle <laughs> glasses. Yes. Named Richard Targ. Who was, this is Stephen Merchant. I love it. Who was also a laser physicist with a side interest in parapsychology and ESP. What is it about lasers that is drawing in these people who are just like, <laughs> yes? And he joins the SRI team, and I will probably think of his last name as Richard Targaryen <laughs> the entire <laughs> time I was writing this. I'm fully just picturing Stephen Merchant with a wild like Bob Dylan wig on in a lab coat just being like, I like lasers and psychic phenomena too. I reached out to him to request an interview and the photo of him on his website looks like that. He's still alive. He's still kicking. Yeah, he's one of the few people still alive. So I had to write into his website we have a little podcast we'd love to talk to you i've not heard back but i well, genuinely expressed my appreciation for his work having read multiple of his biographies he's published quite a lot including a book that is published essentially at the end of our chapter one in the 70s mm -hmm. about their work so far okay this i think this is the most engaged i've been just like what is going to happen next? I think partly because it's recent enough that this one of these guys is still bobbing around, looking at lasers, moving magnets. He holds his cat in his website picture. Like Dr. Evil holds his cat? We're <laughs> just like, this is my buddy. And... Okay. <laughs> so not long after that, two guys in legit suits show up with a copy of this magnetometer experiment paper, little brief that put off wrote, and asking the guys in the SRI team, did you write this? And Are these spooks? This is where the CIA comes in. Okay. How did they get this? One paper, like very limited academic lecture circuit, and someone with connections was like, go find this guy. So one of the theories about how it got to the desk of the CIA was through Richard Targ. He passed it on to someone, but it went through multiple hands to, to get there. Yeah. So cloak and dagger stuff aside, it's the early 70s. Cold War is on, and apparently the CIA has been watching for a number of years as the USSR just pours millions of dollars worth of resources into what the Soviets are calling psychoenergetics, a term... That's roughly the equivalent to parapsychology. But there's a subtle institutional difference or a difference in institutional thought. The United States and the West seems to like hold this assumption that evidence of psychic things has a physical cause, but there's room for the X factor or actually the psi element, which is the Greek letter that stands for thing or ability. So there's room for an unknown variable. But this is, as you said, very anchored in physics. And they're looking at these quantum particles to try to go, is there something physical that we couldn't measure or didn't recognize before that can explain this stuff? Or is there, some, is there something mental that they're doing? It's sort of allowing right. for that, eh. So we have like the foreign intelligence apparatus that knows about this. Is there zero exchange of information or direct communication in academia during the Cold War? Like you always hear about it in military terms. And I'm sure like civilians aren't aren't talking unless they have CB radios or something. But is, is there any academic knowledge sharing? I'm going to go out on a limb and say probably not because hmm. what I know from my friends who are academics still, it's not that great now. Because you're just always fighting. <laughs> Fair enough. You're always fighting over grant money. Right, so right. So everyone's yeah. in their own little cloister. Yeah. But this difference in just the United States allowing intellectually and accepting institutionally that 
there's an unknown fact. We can be 99% certain that this is this card trick is a magic trick and is has a physical mm-hmm. impetus. But, you know, maybe that guy is tele- teleporting across the stage. We just mm, can't know. And you can see the direct line of, I think, from the spirituals tradition, just allowing that little bit of, that little bit kernel of maybe. I mean... I, I I really want to believe that, but isn't this the same way we landed on the moon? Where it's just like, Soviets are putting up satellites, we got to do this bigger and better than they do. Well, I'll get to that here. So <laughs> this is, the reason I'm hammering on about this institutional difference is because mm-hmm. it's so easy to think, well, it's not real, psychic stuff's not real, and that's it. But let's say institutionally, we allow for just a kernel of maybe, the tiniest mm-hmm. percentage. Well, meanwhile... Despite occultism having thrived in Russia, hello, HPP, mm-hmm. yeah. uh, the USSR and their Marxism demanded a physical cause for all psychic events. So reports were just flood, quote, flooding onto the analyst desks at the CIA, DIA, and NSA that the Soviets were determined to run every detail about psychoenergetics just into the ground. That is fascinating. And this is real. Like, this is not a... a misinformation campaign they are actually on the soviet side like aggressively academically scientifically and there were indicators that whatever they find they're going to try to weaponize it so of course the ca obviously isn't sold on psychical research producing any results but they aren't positive enough to then do nothing if the soviets are Mm -hmm. spending this much money on it and this is one of those if there's even a one percent chance we have to treat it as a certainty and prepare and Also because the USSR was pretty tight-fisted with funding, and they were just pouring cash into it. And what I wouldn't give for my Russian to be good enough to read those primary documents of that time. And just, where is the episode about the research going on somewhere in Moscow? (laughs) So this is this out there now? Like when... The, the Berlin Wall falls and the, the USSR kind of dissolves. They open up the archives. We can we can read this? Like, this has become available? I don't know, because there's so many, like, mysteries of mm. that time that are still not known. Like, they just declassified the Dyatlov Pass incident, like, a couple of years true. ago. Yeah. And that just turned out to be, like, a slow-moving avalanche. <laughs> yeah, kind of a freak natural event. So, I don't know. We'd have to get someone on board who would... <laughs> We had the Russian skills to end. Them. Yeah, we got to call in some favors from our Russian community. <laughs> but wouldn't that be just the research project for the ages? Call me. I would watch a mini series about that. I don't even care what the results are. I just want to watch like Chernobyl style, just 10 hours of HBO prestige filmmaking. These these Russian people, <laughs> these just communist psychics trying to nail it down. Well, because this ideological difference... It seems to be that because of this, it, the institution in the USSR couldn't just accept like, oh, stuff happens. It's like, no, no. Why is this happening? You have to find how they're, how it's being done and drilling down on what's making the psychic effect happen. Now, I'm, I'm not sure I understand the ideological difference you're describing. Because we opened with Americans with mm-hmm. uh, a magnetometer. Yes. Like, but in the institution, let's say in the government and in the funding perspective, you'd say, mm-hmm. okay... Let's use this psychokinesis example. They're changing the magnetometer goes up and down. Okay, what's the usefulness of it? Uh, not much. I guess we can just let it go. Whereas in the Soviet perspective, like it, something's happening. We absolutely must need to know why, because whatever that is, we can 
expand on it and we can drill down on it. So they're not necessarily seeing it as just like, oh, something happens and maybe it's not that valuable. Because in the ideology, this has to have a physical source. There has to be something at the basis of it. And so we must find it. Whereas in the American side, like, yeah, it's just kind of weird. It happens. Yeah, maybe he's causing it. Maybe he's not. But it doesn't seem worth it to keep going. It's just a little... So on the Eastern front, it sounds like they're saying, this is real, but we we can't quite explain it. And we must find out why. Because what is explaining it cannot be purely psychic. It has to have a physical, real, quote-unquote, real source. So on the Western side, they're just kind of going... Is this real or even worth looking into? And even if it's he can move it with his mind, he's just moving a needle like, so what? Yeah, yeah. Okay. So, and then the CIA has a dilemma. They need mm-hmm. a credentialed scientist or an academian person who can hold a, clear, a security clearance, do defense-related mm-hmm. work at a secure facility, but it's the early 70s, student unrest is at its height, mm-hmm. and military-related research is not really welcome on campuses Mm -hmm. and the CIA is very unwelcome itself on campuses. Mm -hmm. Have they knocked on BYU's door yet? And just seemed unlikely that they could find any place in academia or outside of the government to do the work that needed to be done and make it legitimate. And then (laughs) they find this paper. Mm -hmm. He's a respected physicist. He's employed by an institution that's already done government contracts. Mm. He's dealt with classified stuff. SRI is outside of the university system itself, so it's sort of perfectly placed, so they're not at risk of student unrest. Mm. And because of its work on nuclear weapons research, it was just perfectly set up. And Putoff, the guy, he was a naval intelligence officer at the NSA, so he already understood the world of intelligence and knew what they wanted. He'd done that before he'd gone further into academia. I'm I'm a little baffled by the military being like, we need someone super smart involved in academia, but not someone who knows students because they're all hippies. Like we yeah. need a smart guy who's not a long hair. We need the credentials, but we can't have them sitting in on stuff without shoes. Mm-hmm. And so here's a guy with a former security clearance. We can update that. And so the two suits, they laid out some funds to get Ingo Swan back from New York. And the CIA guys stick around to observe from trials, and they're so impressed that they lay down an initial 50K, eight-month contract to see what Putoff can, and his guys can turn out for them. I need to know what that means. Inflation calculator. <laughs> All right. This was... 50,000. Yeah, you can say 55. That is the equivalent of just over 400,000. For eight months, is pretty good. So I have to assume the motives of this guy is like, Security clearance because, and then I can get this like ridiculous government grant. Absolutely. The goal is the eight months to deliver something, something useful, and then get more funding. It seems to be how it always goes with these types of things. Sure, sure. And oddly enough, remote viewing wasn't the first subject they were testing to try to give to the CIA. So the purpose of the project, as Swan remembers it, was for me and Hal to find one psychic phenomenon that could be replicated. And it was up to me to decide which one that was going to be. And when it came time to offer it to a client, psychokinesis or PK was the choice. 
since Swan had already convinced the two teams in the magnetometer experiments mm-hmm. that it could be done, and the applications of mind over matter were just too exciting to pass up. The obvious stuff from comic books, you know, stop bombers in the air, <laughs> yeah. or the subtle stuff of messing with the computers of the enemy. Mm-hmm. Okay. So they, they do have a sense of applications here. Absolutely. The whole point is to give something to this. You have to give them something to use, a deliverable. And after five months, there was a ton of evidence that PK was being done, but it couldn't be replicated or controlled in any meaningful way. Meaning they have a limited pool of people who can do it or they can't no, do it on command? They're subjects that they're, do, they're testing it on. So Ingo Swan and a mm-hmm. couple of others. They're seeing him do psychokinesis or seeing him move stuff with his mind, but they're not able to replicate it in a same way every time. And they're Mm. not able to make it do stuff on command. Mm. So the idea of, okay, move this ball. And maybe he does something that's not quite move the ball, but he moves something else. Or move this ball to get it into the cup. You move the ball, it goes outside Ah, the cup. Or moves the other way. So you're seeing it happen, but you can't make it do what you need it to do in order to give it to the CIA and get more money from them. (laughs) Like I could get my dog to grab the ball that I throw, but he won't bring it back and let it go. Pretty much. And so in an effort to give the CIA something, out of the slush of experiments they've done, they pull out and polish off this remote viewing idea. And in an effort to make it tactically applicable, Swan gets the idea to use double blind coordinates to test. Right, right. And so the CIA sends them coordinates to test where the researchers and remote viewers had no idea what it was. And from this book called Reading the Enemy's Mind, one of the soldiers' Mm. um, biographies, it was This was the description of one of the locations. It was a wooded area in the hills of West Virginia, near a vacation cabin. Unknown to anyone involved in the experiment, including the person giving the coordinates, was that within walking distance of the cabin was a secret underground technical facility belonging to the NSA. Even if the SRI researchers had tried to cheat by looking up the coordinates on a map, they would have found nothing. Mm-hmm. But then Ingo Swan's description of it, and another guy who appeared just out of the blue, Pat Price, their descriptions were so accurate, maps drawn to scale, code name right, that CIA renews their contract for two more years. Whoa. So in modern terms, they described a spot in West Virginia, or just Virginia, and the government, the federal government, the intelligence apparatus, like doubled down on what's already close to a half million dollars. They described a place that on the outside looks like, I think, just typical vacation cabin. So had they cheated it and then looked it up, it was, oh, it's a vacation cabin. Here's what the cabin's built like. But then they described, yeah. the remote viewers described this secret facility underground that no one else knows about. All right. I'm I'm hooked. <laughs> I don't know if I'm $800 million hooked, but I'm, I'm interested. I don't know if it was $800 million, but it was, you know, two years of funding to keep doing this stuff. Yeah. Okay. So something that we need to touch on before I get deeper is a guy named Yuri Geller. Have you ever heard of this name? Yes. But for some reason in my, oh, is this the spoon bending guy? Yes. Yes. <laughs> so in the months before this, Initial eight-month contract with the CIA got started, starting like January. So this is the year before. Putoff brings out Yuri Geller to try and use him as they used Ingo Swan as a tester to mm-hmm. make a measurable record record of his psychic abilities. And yeah, he's known for bending spoons, broken watches to run, claiming to be telepathic, like standard showmanship stuff. Yeah. But he's been around for a long time, still has a career, which is wild. But they ran him through six weeks of experiments. 
the fall before their CIA test stuff started. And they were absolutely primed to be skeptical. Richard Targ mm. himself had been a stage magician as a young man. And mm. so he knew all about palming things, disappearing, right, all this stuff. Right. And so he describes himself as being cautious to the point of paranoia Yeah, when they're setting up all these experiments and just around Harry yeah. Geller in general. And I mean, this is Houdini with a security clearance. Like he knows the tricks and he's watching for them. There's a real Houdini-esque person coming up soon who you'll oh appreciate. Oh my goodness. So as I was reading about Yuri Geller, I couldn't help but think that you would absolutely hate his guts because... <laughs> He seems so chaotic and just a, a cloud going around him at all times mm -hmm. that I don't think you'd be able to stay in his presence for more than five minutes. But <laughs> <laughs> they have a hard time wrangling him into lab conditions. His uh... performing vibe and, and sounds like his personal vibe is one that just works against him as a test subject. <laughs> some things they get recorded, some things they get under controlled conditions but remember they're specifically trying to test him for moving stuff with his mind in a replicatable right. way they're they're trying to prove that this psychokinesis thing can be done and mm -hmm. a bunch of weird stuff happens you know all this weird psychic shit's going on that they have to record but they can't prove anything with right i thought this was a pretty interesting one so a bunch of engineers are crowded around a television monitor where an ultrasonic visualization system's being tested and geller walks in looks at the TV, just says, let me show you what I can do. He points at the TV and shouts, up, down, up, down. And as he shouts, the picture flips off the screen to go up, flips down, and follows his commands. And then he just waltzes off to lunch. And everyone is trying to figure out how it worked. It was under video surveillance. Very weird. And they have to write up affidavits mm. that they were there. Mm. I don't know. Isn't, isn't that like... When you're fiddling with the, the rabbit ears on your TV, the picture flickers like that. He was 15 feet away. Uh... A lot of the reading about Geller feels like that. Like, an, uh, yeah. vibe. But also it's because I think you're, he just lives in this weird place of by being a performer, having that and having that persona just works, mm -hmm. works against you as a test subject. I'll yeah. say it again. So they start out by trying to get conclusive evidence of spoon bending. And other psychokinesis stuff. And they don't get anywhere. And as Richard Targ writes, there's evidence of paranormal activity in the lab setting. But they, they all fall into this general category of funny things that happened rather than control <laughs> experiments. Yeah. And here's an example of the problem. So the task is to deflect a compass needle, which Geller does. Before and after the experiment, he was gone over with a magnetometer probe. His hands were continuously filmed from above and below. And he's working with the compass resting on this special glass top table. So they can catch him from all angles. And there's no obvious pieces of metal or magnets in his possession. However, according to the protocol of the experiments, if they could in any way debunk the experiment or produce the effect by other means then it's all mm. null and void, even if there's no indication of something untoward happening in the experiment. Hmm. I mean, that sounds pretty, pretty aggressive. I like it. And so in this case, they found out later that these types of deflections with the compass could be reproduced with a small piece of metal, so small that it might not be picked up by a magnetometer. But mm. they, they found that out later, had to throw the whole study out. Sure. And see, the line we were drawing is one that gives us no pleasure and provides a lot of discomfort. 
which I thought was quite a line. It's our impression that Yuri possibly did perform a number of genuine psychokinetic feats in the laboratory, but in the world of science, no one at all cares what we think possibly may have happened. Possibly is not good enough. And it never happened under good experimental conditions. I mean, that's remarkably self-aware, especially if you're thirsty for more government money. But they do get evidence under experimental conditions of paranormal perceptual ability. And this gets furthers the runway for what becomes the remote viewing thing later the next year but with the involvement of geller the publication of these early experiments and papers go into the book that i mentioned mind reached in 1977 Mm -hmm. that covers the remote viewing experiments and it was also a source for this episode and we get the beginnings of a serious and just rabid criticism of geller's work and the work of the experiments in general And I'll start with a rabid one because I went down a rabid hole. (laughs) (laughs) And this guy freaking hates Yuri Geller. He is a professional Mm. magician and debunker. He's our Harry Houdini of the series. This is Houdini, yeah. James the Amazing Randy. Oh my God. Randy spelled with an I. Is he on tour? Can I get tickets? He published a book in 18... And pardon me, I wanted to say 1880 because that feels like where we're at. It's yeah, 1980 yeah. called Flim Flam, just ripping yes. apart SRI's methodology, claims tapes were made after the fact, the cameraman was a source, which was actually disputed later in affidavit. And while hmm. some of the methodological criticism are also found in more serious sources, he just went too far in the debunking direction. And hmm. a journalist later by the name of D. Scott Rogo who was on the paranormal beat of the 70s and 80s. And oh my gosh, do I not want to read everything he's ever written. His bibliography Mm -hmm. looks insane. He followed up on all of Randy's claims and found a ton of misstatements, misrepresentations. The cameraman he claimed to be his source never met him. And it seems like the same stretching that people do when they want to prove paranormal things where they stretch the truth it seemed like that happened in the opposite way Hmm. and also not good you know it's hard to say because in the narrative of remote viewing and sri it's easy to paint randy as this villain but as i looked into him i mean i had to pull this was such a rabbit hole he reminded me of harry udini and Mm -hmm. also not just for the debunking aspect but also this like secret i want to believe heart right in 1996 he got along with another guy named ray hyman and they formed the committee for scientific investigation of claims of the paranormal there was a magazine called the skeptical Mm -hmm. inquirer and he traveled the world as the public face of this organization he feuded with geller like throughout the 90s lawsuits whole thing in 96 he started educational fund he had huge cash prizes for proof of psychic powers he had a ton of tv shows he was a found, considered a founding figure in this type of skepticism and debunking. And in 2012, Penn and Teller credit him by name as, if not for Randy, there would be no Penn and Teller today. Yes. And he was just this huge juggernaut of magic, skeptic, really Harry Houdini, Houdini reincarnated, in my opinion. Yeah. And he died at age 92 in 2020 in Florida. Damn. I know. So close <laughs> to still chat to him. But yeah. it was wild. And I tell you my thoughts that I so thoughtfully wrote down. <laughs> yeah. So while I was down reading about James Randi, I had to sit with this type of skepticism for a while. And I find, on the one hand, this type of deep skepticism so boring and reductive. I found a podcast sure. called European Skeptics. And I was like, mm. I don't want to make my podcast all about debunking stuff. That's no fun. You're boring at a party. 
PG then. <laughs> Actually. The, the sucking the fun out of everything. But, mm. you know, and when I think about all the topics and belief systems and things I want to explore on this podcast, I'm pretty sure they could all be struck down by a skeptic on a mission. But I don't think that diminishes, you know, their value, potential usefulness, existence or impact on people's lives. And Gary Geller is still out there. He still has a career. No more gorgeous head of hair, though. That was lost to the 70s. But Time will find us all. Just like Houdini was in the 20s, I think there's a real important quality control aspect that should be used with mm -hmm. practitioners in the public to keep I mean, something honest, to keep the protocol in place. That hardline scientific experimental protocol has its place because just like Harry Houdini, we don't want mediums advertising with certainty in the paper. Right. Well, you're, you're, again, I think the, the common thread here is you're talking about the path of the seeker, mm -hmm. where if there's something to investigate you want to, and maybe you also need some guidance on seeing through it, criticizing it, just thinking critically. But a pure skeptic is not a seeker because they have an agenda. And I think of what was President Houdini and in James Randi was this desire to learn the stage magic, show that it's a trick, and then find mm -hmm. the next thing that's out of sight with it. Keep going. Right. And and to keep it current, to sort of keep that body of awareness active. And I think that's something yeah. that Randy did over his career, you know, through the 90s, 2000s, 2010s, by keeping up with technology and how it was being used. I mean, one, got to look up a picture of him. One of his students described him as a better double door. Oh, my. Oh, my. Yeah, this is like... Somewhere between Hemingway and Dumbledore. <laughs> Precisely. I do want to go back and like watch what of his is still on Netflix. Oh my. <laughs> With the cane, I love it. So before we jump back into our previous narrative of our SRI guys, I want to read what Russell Targ wrote about the issues of studying parapsychology, mm. which is crucial because even James Randi didn't dismiss the field outright. He was critical of the methodologies, as Russell Targer. One of the tactics of those hostile to the concept of paranormal functioning is to generate a polemic about believers and non-believers, which we consider a false dichotomy. In 1960, when we were both involved in early laser research, no one ever asked us if we believed in lasers. The closest question to that would be, have you ever seen a laser? And when we reported that we had indeed seen one and could describe its properties, the question of its existence was quickly settled. There's often a remarkable inversion of this logic when applied to psychical research. An oft-repeated suggestion is that people who have seen examples of psychic functioning are soft on ESP. That is, they're believers, so their observations cannot be trusted. This raises the following paradox. If observing an event disqualifies one as an observer, then who's qualified to observe? It is the existence of this dilemma that's led us to ask visitors to a laboratory to personally generate a psychic event rather than observe one. They are then faced with the decision of accepting what they've just done or denying their own experience. This can often be very stressful because it can force a person <laughs> to face a contradiction within their own belief structure. Ooh. An individual likes to feel that all his or her ideas are logically consistent. If he finds that there is an internal contradiction, he either has to change one of his premises or admit that he is using some criterion other than reasoning for research, reaching decisions in this particular area. He goes on to say, this whole question of coincidences is one that plagues psychic research. 
For example, if you ask a psychic to tell you the serial numbers engraved on the inside of your watch, and he correctly gives you the six digits in their proper order, do you conclude that he's a psychic or was it just his lucky day? How many times would you have to see a one in a million event to be repeated before you conclude that, yeah, he's a psychic? Hmm. Yeah. Can you predict the outcome of a coin toss? Probably. (laughs) At least some of the time. And, And I think that's just such a cool, accurate observation. Because Yeah. Well, that goes way beyond even the substance, like the the focus of what he's writing about. Like you talk about having political arguments at the Thanksgiving dinner table today, and it's really, really hard to get people to confront their belief systems and challenge whether it's coming from a logical place. I think it's because unless you start making it an interest to look at other belief Mm. systems, you don't know the extent of your own. Again, the path of the seeker. This does seem like a place where, (laughs) you know, Cold War notwithstanding, they would have benefited enormously from some information exchange with the Soviets, because clearly there's zero interaction between them. But in terms of scientific replication, if they're getting certain results and you're getting certain results and you have remotely comparable methodology, that would seem, I would think, very compelling. I mean, maybe we should dig into the documents. (laughs) Yes, and That's what I'm saying. A bonus episode, you and me with a Cyrillic automatic the translator. Soviet archives. <laughs> <laughs> that would be amazing. Let's just pop them into Google Translate. But also, the interesting thing to remember about the USSR then and even Russia now is that because it's so large, the area it mm. encompasses includes cultures and peoples that have deep shamanic traditions. Mm. Essentially, if you imagine modern Russia, that huge behemoth, and you cut it right in yeah. half from that second half, the one that's away from Moscow, is this huge ethnically diverse area, even further closer to the Urals and stuff. And mm. the Buryat tradition, which is a Mongolian a Mongolian right. culture, huge shamanic traditions. So there's a these, I'm going to say resources available to the Soviets, but you're working with some knowledge in the ecosystem. I'm sure that there was not an openness to it per se. No more than it's somewhere in public awareness. There's something to work with if you were to look. Mm -hmm. There's it's not they're not completely on a separate planet from the awarenesses that understand this in a different way. Right. All all the peoples within your geography are going to have an influence on Mm -hmm. the collective culture and popular awareness. But it does make me wonder if they're if they're pulling people in from like Serbia and like northern Mongolia and bringing them out to Moscow. I'm sure they're not. I'm sure they're keeping it as Mm. bureaucratic and staid as possible. Like truly the the aesthetic of the HBO Chernobyl series, just studying psychic research. Super square comrades coming in and trying to move pennies or whatever. (laughs) So anyway, let's get back to our CIA funded lab. (laughs) Yes. Let us. So they dive in on remote viewing as a tactic and Mm -hmm. not just that it exists they've already accepted it it exists and it's doable now they're trying to make use of it and Mm -hmm. it's called the technology series where they tried to determine if and how well instruments and machinery could be perceived under these double blind conditions and the targets included an abacus with a clock and mechanical calendar attached then a state-of-the-art IBM Selectric typewriter, a mm. standalone Xerox photocopier, heavy-duty drill press, 
and altogether seven pieces of equipment were viewed with double-blind conditions by 12 remote viewers with pretty impressive results, with two of the viewers being visited like two of the sessions being visited during that time, had the CIA guys there, and they were mm. apparently some of the best results. So the the natural escalation of this, I assume, is can we reverse engineer like Soviet spy planes or see what their bomb technology is at without having to actually go in, capture, down an airplane, whatever. You're thinking like a 1970s CIA officer. Yeah. Got my little black fedora and sunglasses. So one experiment had viewers figuring out whether sealed envelopes contained secret writing. So think invisible Mm -hmm. ink or another way that you'd write a message that you wouldn't know was not visible on the paper. Yeah. And the results were encouraging, but not statistically significant. So it's exciting when it happens, but it's not consistent enough to be reliable. It's your Augusta golf holes. Yeah. So then they try to go about finding a way to identify who would be a good remote viewer. But what they find isn't so much a discernment method. What they find is evidence that remote viewing is an ability that huge chunks of the population can just have. And based on that definition mm-hmm. we read earlier, it seems to be pretty accepted that everyone has it to varying degrees and it can be cultivated to be good with it. But by the nature of what it is, it's not like looking at someone going, you're tall, you could play basketball, you're lean, you could be a gymnast. They they can't easily see the, the stronger people. Well, the main difference between their experienced viewers and randos is simply the reliability of results, but not the accuracy itself. Mm. So they would get, they'd bring in constantly just random people to test against their more experienced viewers, and the randoms would get it right. They'd be able to perform the test. So when you say the random people don't self-identify as practiced in this. No, it'd be their first time. But what was different was they couldn't replicate it consistently. And how Mm. the sporadicness of accuracy. So they're not hitting free throw shots every day, but they can still make that shot from the half court line. (laughs) So we're we're very much in a stopped clock is right twice a day territory. But yet it's still quite compelling when you think of, oh, you're viewing something from that's quite complex that shouldn't Mm. be logically done. So they've already really accepted that this is something people do. It's just how do we get them to do it for the government? Mm -hmm. And if we don't know the things we don't know, how do we measure the accuracy and when you've landed on Sar Bomba or whatever? So here are the main insights gained from this phase of research were up to the Mm mid-70s. Responses that described were far more likely to be accurate than those that evolved analysis. So if the target was an apple, the viewer might respond with, it's red, rounded, smooth, semi-soft, and be correct. But going on to try to name it, led to inaccuracy. Hmm. And so to take that earlier description and say it corresponds with an apple, but it could also correspond with a rubber ball. I mean, this this gets to the problem with psychics in general, which is you're, you're limited by the, the bias of what they focus on and their articulateness in mm-hmm. disseminating whatever it is that they're feeling. So the researchers adopted a policy of just telling the viewers to describe rather than Mm. what they think they're looking at. And when the comparing responses from several viewers for the same target would improve the quality of the data. Okay, yeah. When two or more viewers were tasked to describe the same target, the judge was more likely to be successfully matching their descriptions. And so they'd have people independently evaluate outside of the people just doing it. And they also found that remote viewers often seem to be employing a scanning process. So viewers would report pieces of information 
and then go back and report more pieces and then fit them all together. Mm. Hence this description first policy. Motion at the target was usually not noticed and moving objects were not identified even when neighboring objects were static. So it's kind of like a camera on a low shutter speed where like you're getting the general picture, but certain things are not going to be in focus for you. In some experiments, viewers frequently described additional details beyond what the team at the target site was able to observe, but then would turn out to be right when they went and looked back again. This is putting me very much in mind of a police sketch of a suspect Mm -hmm. and you, you know, you're interviewing multiple people to try to get a better and better sketch. And one guy just comes out with, oh, and he, I think he had a mole like on the left side of his chin. And they're like, does he? And then they go and arrest someone. And they look, oh my God, he does. <laughs> and each viewer had their own style or signature and a tendency to hone in on certain areas and avoid others. So sure. the preference for reporting certain kinds of data, architecture, terrain, that kind of thing. And sure. they found it could improve with practice. So while a novice could occasionally provide excellent results, successful performances increased with practice and experience, hmm. which makes sense. You're getting more into your zone. Yeah, that's that's everything. <laughs> that's anything that you can do. So here's probably the big conclusion. Average people could be taught to remote view. And in the field of parapsychology at the time, this was revolutionary. So instead of being kind of chosen or gifted, it's are you ready to commit and work together with people to develop this? Well, once someone once told me to treat psychic skills as a learnable skill. Mm-hmm. And I find that true now, like any other skill. Meditation, you know, increases with yeah, practice. Thinking, Anyone can yeah. meditate. Anyone can perceive their inner world in these different ways. But I find it pretty revolutionary for the scientific establishment of 1975 <laughs> to land on that. You do have to wonder how heavily incentivized they are by concern about the Cold War, though. Like, it, it does make me wonder how much they're willing to swallow skepticism I would say they were fairly, they were independent enough because mm-hmm. after this, the CIA cut funding <laughs> and scrapped <Right>. it. Because <laughs> it just wasn't useful enough. They just got funding. They Two years were up and they couldn't get it. They couldn't land. So anyway, by it crossing over with sort of the ESP jargon, we tend to think of sender, receiver, transmitter. One of the only known means for obtaining information at a distance was through the electromagnetic spectrum. Radio waves, television waves, electricity, light. And so SRI set out to determine whether remote viewing needed electromagnetism to work and where on the spectrum it's involved. And so they did a process of elimination. And through trial and error, they were able to block out all the higher frequencies like radio, microwave, with no decrease in remote viewing success. So is this sort of where the the visuals that you get in pop culture of like the electrodes, you know, strapped over someone's head? And the only type of frequency they couldn't block out because it was super small were what's called ELF frequencies. ELF? ELF stands for Extremely Low Frequency Electromagnetic Radiation. And these waves travel long distances, only gradually losing intensity. And they can pass through shielding that would stop other forms of radiation. And human beings sensitive to ELF waves with regards to ESP is not a new theory. The Russians were testing this and trying to figure this out. And some of the experiments conducted at SRI were replications of the Soviet researcher Leonid Vasiliev. And 
Vasiliev was sure that Psy had a physical root, like we hammered on earlier. And he had Soviet psychics work from within deep mines underground and later decided that the only way to prove that Elf carried ESP signals would be using seawater as a shielding to put them in the ocean. And if it stopped working underwater, then the Elf radiation was the culprit and Hmm. so sri tries to do this and just the navy does not want to touch it don't want to loan out a (laughs) submarine they end up getting their hands on a research submersible why why are they putting them into the ocean can't they just get like a saltwater pool it's it's to the depth so it's it's distance and it's distance and pressure and being un- in the ocean. I'm, okay. I can't go into any more detail than I've already pro- provided about <laughs> elf frequencies. So. <laughs> right. Well, I'm just, I'm partly thinking about stranger things because so much of this lines up. Like they're clearly drawing from these experience with Elle. You know, she's got the electrodes. She's doing remote viewing. She can broadcast the Soviet over the local intercom. But they also put her in a sensory deprivation tank mm. where she's semi-buoyant, you know, in a, in a certain concentration of salt water. Oh, that must have been where this comes from. And so the first experiment was aimed at looking to see if large quantities of seawater could be looked through using remote viewing. And they had seven remote viewers and psychics, and they were asked to identify the location of a shipwreck on the ocean floor off of California. And if they came to a location, the little submersible would go and see if there was a sunken vessel there. Mm-hmm. And the locations provided... And dude, there was a shipwreck there. Which is exciting, but also, where else are you going to find a shipwreck? But it's, it, the ocean's big, that's the thing. <laughs> well, yeah, but most ships are going to be near the coast, right? Like, you have shipping lanes. I don't know. Okay, I don't fine. Know. It's sec- exciting, but it's not... The second leg of the experiment involved individual dives and identifying random targets under the water. And the results were such that it became obvious that Elf was not doing, was not responsible mm. for the remote viewing results. And since the degree of attenuation of ELF in seawater could be measured, and this was like a hundredfold decrease, they were able to rule it out. And I only wish that I could compare and I had more info about what the Soviets were doing about this because if they were sending mm-hmm. people into the mines, like what else, what other crazy things were they doing trying to like run down this? Did they get their Navy involved? Like what were they doing? We can only imagine. Well, it, it does sound a lot like that apocryphal story of, you know, NASA spending millions to design a zero-gravity pen and the Soviets using a pencil. Like, we we built the electromagnetic shield and brought this guy in, and they're like, get in the mine. <laughs> just, just go down into the mine. Let's do this. Well, here's our last story for this, this leg mm. of the journey. Here comes the bomber plane. Oh, no. So... In March of 1979, a Soviet Tu-22 like blind bomber, outfitted as a reconnaissance aircraft, crashed somewhere in Africa. Oh, all right. The U.S., of course, wants to be the first to get it, and they can't right, locate right, right. it because of dense jungle cover and the lack of precision of equipment at the time. So they have this Hail Mary request from the Air Force, comes down the chain, to see if remote viewing can get a read on it. And the remote viewer produced a hand-sketched map of the crash site that closely matches an area, not being searched at that moment, but sort of nearby-ish, but it was outside of the search zone. And then the remote viewer gets a topographical map of that area and marks an X where the crash site is. And another remote viewer doesn't give an X, but it gives a detailed description. Steep, jungle-covered hillside, red-colored streams running past the site. And with Red streams? That sounds very specific. And within two days, they find the plane. The Americans do. Yeah. It was within the circle 
and within three miles of the X. All right, that is pretty compelling because you you have to imagine they had some telemetry the Soviets did for the actual mm-hmm. like tracking their plane. The bomber had crashed into a jungle-covered hillside on the verge of a river running with red clay from the surrounding hills. <sighs> okay, <laughs> and this somehow leaked to the press got written up in the Washington Post, and years later, Jimmy Carter was asked about it. And he just said he was impressed when the psychic had given the location of the missing aircraft, and quote, and the plane was there. So they're impressed enough to use it when they're fully desperate, but (laughs) they've still cut off funding. The CIA cut off funding, and at that time, the bomber... It was in, I'm going to call the, uh, I'm sure an academic would have actual words for this. When you're scrum, you're making the project go, you're just stitching together funding from here and there, hoping for the next big benefactor to come along. And that's what, that's what they were doing in these early years before stage two, the military gets involved in a big way. So not the CIA, but the actual like Department of Defense. And this is where you get the men who stare at goats. Men who stare at goats. That's when it starts to tie in. And I'm hoping I can wrap it up in in another episode. It won't be another three parter, but <laughs> So we they they start with an intelligence apparatus. Mm-hmm. Partly like I said, based on some perception of what the Soviets are doing. Eh. You know, the CIA loses interest, and then the Department of Defense... The CIA was just saying, though, they were saying that it's not accurate enough. It wasn't useful enough to keep funding. It's not that it wasn't real. It's not that it wasn't accurate. Yeah, the CIA just couldn't replicate it enough to keep funding it and making it more useful than their other technology. Well, and I think that might be the key thing here, because they're clearly interested and there's clearly things worth pursuing. But if you look at their other sources of intelligence that are maybe higher stakes and more costly, but also more reliable, it's hard to justify also diverting funds from, you know, embedded agents and and the feedback element. With. If you give yeah. someone these a complex drawing until you can get feedback that it's right, you're living in this ambiguity that I can see that making the intelligence community really uncomfortable to keep mm-hmm. doing that. Yeah, so the remote viewed this. Maybe it's right. How do you then justify any inaccuracy? Because you have some more real world consequences. Right. And you can't invest your other tangible resources in validating every whim or imaginary thing that comes Mm -hmm. from this. Yeah. But with Mind Reach, that book that came out in 77, and it's starting to get out there that this research is there, it it attracts the attention of a general Stubline. Stublin, and he diverts a bunch of military funding to get into it. And that's how <laughs> the adventure begins. Oh my god, that's how it begins. But I I think before we end, we have two more envelopes that Eddie prepared oh, for us. Okay. All right. I've I've warmed up. Let's see if I've stretched well enough. Okay. So eyes closed. Connect to envelope three. Shoulders. Mind is blank. And it's just whatever I see. Yeah. I see a stone, I want to say a stone arch, although not round, more like, kind of like what you see in China and Japan, like pillars with more of a square, uh, square box shape. It doesn't look like it leads into a building, though. It looks more like a decorative thing. I could just be picturing the White House. I'm not sure. (laughs) Let's see. 
And we're looking at the skyline of Hong Kong. Not even close. Okay. <laughs> I mean, Asia. <laughs> I'm sure one of those is in there, yeah. But Asia. Uh, All right, number shake four. It off, shake it off. Shake it off. We are going... <laughs> I'm also trying not to think of what I know about Eduardo and places he vacationed or something. Like, <laughs> trying to let it come to me. I see a tree and a large pond with... I don't know if it would be very clear water that produces uh, a reflective surface. Maybe very calm water. Not a river. A large body. Okay, let's see. That's what I got. Number four. Tree and a clear body of water. Wrong. We are looking at Chamonix. <laughs> a ski resort in France. Fair enough. Which, to be fair, these are also just such Eduardo places to pick. A ski yeah. resort, a golf course. Place we lived in Asia and a place we like to go eat food. <laughs> yeah. Well, Which, so yeah, if, if you lean into biases and things like that, you, you get probably false positives. Uh, it is fun to do, I have to say. Like, I don't expect much from myself. But, you know, like Houdini, I'm kind of ready to be you want to believe. surprised and delighted. But, fun fact, Russell Tard also went and he developed an app called Stargate ESP app that you can have on your phone to test your remote viewing skills. It automatically will generate targets and things for you to focus yeah. on. Just like random image generator and then mm -hmm. you picture, you check. So you can kind of do it yourself, but have some amount of that similar. There's an app for or, that. Or at least train yourself. <laughs> huh. So it can be, if you want to download that, it's free on me. It's 99 cents on the app store. <laughs> So that does actually sound like a lot of fun. <laughs> like my own version of an adult coloring book. I just, I sit down or if I'm waiting at the airport and I just try to get my ESP on. Yeah. I mean, you see the, the allure of it and. Well, and being told that it's, it's teachable and improvable and not just you either have it or you don't. Well, it's one of the reasons I wanted to start with this as we take our first footsteps into the whole wide world of psychic stuff. Because it's it's the one the one that is most known to be teachable. But interestingly, the more I've read and learned and talked to people in different psychic and shamanic traditions, it's all learnable to an extent. Some people in certain traditions need to be sort of born with it. But a yeah. lot of tactics like shamanic journeying in and of itself are learnable. It just requires practicing and engaging with it. And right. what happens is that if we all have these skills, we're just leaning on other faculties more. And so you don't develop them enough. Right. I mean, that's also like anything. Yeah. You, like you can learn any skill, but you might have a natural ability to improve more quickly doing some things. Which is also why so many more women, for example, have... We talk about mm. women's intuition, but it's also psychic functioning because of a different experience in the world perceiving the environment around them. But also right. there's a theory that we were more psychic in a previous time in earlier generations, because if you're a nomadic group and you're looking for where do we go to find the food and you go mm -hmm. that hill or this hill and you start having to look around for where you're going to put your energy and essentially place your bet to find to find if someone them. has reliable hunches, you start to just ask them first. Well, and I've certainly done that on many of our world travels. Be like, where do we go for mm -hmm. this thing we're looking for? <laughs> this, do we turn down this way or that way? 
Yeah. I mean, that's, that is... that's so casual that we hardly be considered, you know, psychic functioning, but you're leaning on right. a different aspect of intuition, especially in the time before you, or in countries where you don't have your phone at your fingertips to really give you right. reliable information. That does also make one wonder if you're talking about the difference in generations, if it does have something to do with electronics and different wavelengths of sound or energy or whatever. It's a it's a noisier world in that respect. Mm -hmm. You know, we've we've got satellites. Everyone's got cell phones. There's Wi-Fi everywhere. The five G is turning the frogs gay, or whatever, <laughs> whatever that thing is. <laughs> but there's there's just a lot more chaos in even if you don't hear it, just you know, consciously with your ears. And that's one of the reasons that some people think we see less hauntings or ghosts or that sort of paranormal activity because of mm. the electricity just out in the ether. Hmm. It's compelling, but also very convenient that when you would think we would have greater sensitivity and ability to detect these things, we're finding it less. Well, we can argue the one in a million theory. It's like, oh, it's mm -hmm. noise in the house. It's not a poltergeist. Oh, it's just the phone being funny. It's not, it, something's not in the, there's not a ghost in the machine. It's just being weird. Right, right. Hmm. I do want to believe. I really do. I believe too. <laughs> That's why we have the show. <laughs> yes. Oh, man. 